to you, Father, we come in the name of your Son, who has provided for us eternal life through his death and his resurrection. And Father, we recognize that you have given to us the whole counsel of your word to give us understanding as to why Jesus had to come and the meaning of his death and his resurrection. And as we read of the initial years of the Israelite nation and the uh, lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and others, we're just so thankful that we have this complete story. And it gives us an understanding of the flow of history and of your hand upon the development of the human race and of the uh, manifestation of the word. And Father, as we are seemingly at the other end of the flow of time, and we look back, we are cognizant of the fact that certainly events mark the soon return of Christ, and we look forward to that. Even though we would dare not to presume as to when that might be, we have a sense, Lord, of even as Scripture teaches us that we are closer now to the time of your return than at the hour of our first coming to faith. And so, Lord, keep us strong. I pray that the Word of God will enlighten our hearts and that we will live according to its precepts. We ask you to be our teacher as we study these verses now this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 25, beginning at verse 27, Genesis 25, 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a great had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die, so of what use then is the birthright to me. And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Last week we looked at what I believe the scripture really tells us about these two young men. And uh, I think that the story we often have, or the picture we have of them, is uh, sometimes not accurate to what the scripture tells us here. Uh, the picture often that we have is of the, the, the he-man, Esau, who's a real man, and of this little wimp called Jacob, who lives in the tents and uh, has tied to his mother's apron string. I don't think that's what Scripture tells us at all about these two men. I think that uh, what we have here is a picture of a forever teenager called Esau and a man, Jacob, who had a vision of the future. And as you look at the life of this man, Jacob, we find he had his problems and he had his clay feet, as we all do. But nevertheless, he was a man God worked through to bring about the great nation through which he would send his son. 
Let me remind you again, too, in verse 27, as we noted last time, uh, even though the King James Version translates the latter part of that verse about Jacob as a plain man, that is not the meaning of the word in the true sense of the Hebrew here. The word means complete. It means, literally, can mean perfect, but it doesn't mean perfect as we often use the word. But in the sense that he was a full man, uh, he was a man who had strengths in all areas. It's the same word that was used about Job. When you read in the first chapter of Job, it tells us that Job was a perfect man or a complete man in the eyes of God. Same word that's used here for this man, Jacob. We do see a division, though. We see that uh, Isaac loves Esau and Rebekah loves Jacob. And so this has produced friction in the family. But it seems that the friction began with Isaac and, and uh, Rebekah even as it began with Jacob and Esau in the womb. Rebekah was attracted to Jacob's strength of character. I don't think she just mollycoddled uh, this little uh, wimpy kid who never went outside because he was afraid to get sunburned. Uh, this, this was a man who grew up with character and strength. Uh, he knew how to work. It wasn't that he just lived in the tent and cooked stew all day long. Uh, this was a man who directed the affairs of the family. He was moving into the place of the leadership of the clan. He was preparing for that, certainly because of his understanding of what his mother had heard from God. He had a keen sense of the future. He knew that God had said that the elder will serve the younger, and it will be the younger who will inherit the birthright. He has an understanding of this, and as a result, this is of concern to him. Un unfortunately, a little bit too much concern as we read further down in the passage. Isaac is attracted to Esau, and I think he's attracted to Esau because in Esau, he sees what inside himself he kind of wanted to be a little bit also. He saw an opportunity to vicariously shirk responsibility. Esau was a man who just took off to go hunting and you know, come hell or high water, didn't matter what was going on. He just uh, went off to do his fun thing, and it didn't really matter what had to be done or what didn't have to be done. He was like, as I noted last time, many uh, are in America today. Uh, they just take off and leave responsibility behind because of this, quote, sport or this interest of their own. And they can spend a whole weekend or a whole week uh, forgetting everybody else and ignoring anybody else's needs and responsibilities and just to go off and play uh, on their own, which is fine if you're 6 or maybe even 16, but when you're 50 and 60, people need to be, I think, more responsible to those around them. The game that Esau hunted was something that greatly appealed to the appetite of Isaac. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with eating venison or other wild meat. That's perfectly fine. Uh, people have done it ever since uh, God allowed the eating of meat, and people do it today, and there's absolutely nothing wrong in that. But if fulfilling the desires of the appetite, as in this particular case, leads to the neglect of training up a child in the way that he should go, then there is something definitely wrong in the desire of the father. Uh, Isaac miserably fails as a father here to this young man, Esau. And as a result, he reaps an Absalom. 
As David would later reap an Absalom, and as Solomon would reap a Rehoboam, so Isaac reaps an Esau, a rebel here. Isaac, by example, contributed to his son's failure. Esau did not learn the proper values of life. And more importantly, he did not learn to respect and to fear the Almighty. You all know the passage in Proverbs 9 where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Hmm. Not the end result of wisdom, but it's the very beginning of wisdom. If you don't have a fear, an understanding, a sense of the reality of God, wisdom will not be in your camp or in my camp. Uh, that's what makes me uh, you know, so often think about the, the great contrast that stands between uh, the, the secular uh, humanistic evolutionary state university and the great Christian colleges of the land. Sure, there's a lot of things you can learn here, but there's no beginning of wisdom here because they don't fear God in the secular institutions. Most of the professors do not. In fact, they, they laugh about God and, and they try to tear the Christian students all apart and make mince meat out of them. And we've had friends to whom that has happened. And, and here, what have you got? Really, it's folly. And yet, in the other institution where God is honored, you have really the opportunity for young people to gain not just knowledge, but wisdom to know how to live life and how to really understand why we're here. And this, of course, is the most important truth that a father can leave his children by example and by precept to know to fear God. The fear of God changes a lot of things in life. People live more responsibly. You know, you think about the history of this country, and this country has never been a Christian nation. We realize, I, I, I trust you all realize, the fact that at the time when our founding fathers established this country, and when the Declaration of Independence was written, and the U.S. Constitution was written, was one of the periods of time <coughs> of the lowest spiritual ebb in the history of this country. It was the time of the Great Enlightenment, uh, of uh, again, an uh, early form of secular humanism. It was the time when God was relegated to some very distant uh, uh, existence in the minds of many, such as Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the key thinkers of that uh, period of time. Uh, it was a time when it, the statistics show that less than 10% of the population of this country claimed mem membership in any Christian church. Well, I mean, today the, the figure is over 60% claim membership in a Christian church in this country, <coughs> whatever that really means. And, and, you know, out of this was yet born a nation that God had his hand upon, but it wasn't because the leaders were godly people in the sense uh, that we'd like to think of them being. Uh, the fear of God is the very beginning of wisdom. And that is so essential for us to remember and to be sure that we put in the hearts of our children and our grandchildren. Now, Isaac condoned and even encouraged Esau's lifestyle. And thus, Isaac was partially responsible for Esau's failures. We have a problem today. 
that uh, in, in secular areas, there's an attempt to try to pass the buck of responsibility to society or to your parents or to something else. If you're an irresponsible person who gets into trouble, it's somebody else's fault and not your own. There is a measure to which there is responsibility on the part of parents and society and others for how a person turns out, but really the buck stops ultimately in your own heart and in the heart of, the, of every individual. So it does with Esau. But there is a measure to which Isaac has failed to be and to show, be what he ought to be and to show Esau the way. And so in many ways he was like David. David the great king. David who was the apple of God's eye and yet who failed to discipline his own sons and reaped rebels, especially uh, in the case of Absalom and Adonijah. Isaac undoubtedly rationalized his favoritism. I mean, how could he avoid realizing that he was playing favorites? I mean, he knew there was conflict between him and his wife over the issue of the two sons. But he could rationalize away his favoritism and, and think, you know, I'm right here because Esau is my firstborn. And it's right to favor your firstborn. That's the way it ought to be. Normally, the firstborn is the inheritor of all that the father and mother uh, possess, uh, the leadership of the clan, the responsibility for the future rests in the hands of the firstborn male. And that's who Esau was. He was to be the clan chief. But in this, in this particular case, he was also to be the clan priest, if you will. The word isn't used, but in effect. Uh, he was to lead the family in their relationship with God. He was to be the one to carry the covenant on. He was to build the altars, to intercede for the family before God. That's what the clan head was to do in this family. But the only part of it which appealed to Esau was the part of inher inheriting the material estate. He was interested in that, <coughs> but he was not interested in any of those other responsibilities. He was an irresponsible man. And even, even the material uh, inheritance could be sold for a bowl of soup. So we have a shallow character here. We have a character with no root, no depth, no understanding of, of, of what his place was in history and who he was before the Almighty. And this becomes very, very evident in this well-known event here or, or uh, you know, scenario between Esau and Jacob. Jacob was cooking himself a meal we can assume. Now, did you ever think about this in the light of the fact that why was Jacob doing this? Let's give him benefit of the doubt at this moment anyway and say that this was not premeditated. I'm not saying that it wasn't. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to indicate it was. But uh, let's just say he was cooking himself a bowl of stew because he wanted it. Now, was this necessary? I mean, he is the son of the clan chief. And remember how many we assume was associated with Abraham? There were at least 2,000 servants associated with Abraham's household. Certainly they're still there and maybe even more now. Was it necessary for Jacob to cook this stew? Absolutely not. There were servants to cook meals anytime you wanted meals cooked. There was probably food on the, in the process all the time to feed this great horde of people. So why is he doing this? 
Well, if, it's, if this is not a premeditated thing, he's probably doing it because he wanted it. You know? And uh, because he himself wanted to practice cooking. He was a complete man. <laughs> he wanted to know how to do all these things. And so he even cooked. That's assuming this is not a premeditated thing. Cooking for his own pleasure. Boiling up a pot of lentil stew. <laughs> Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Probably was pretty good. It had a red-colored condiment in it called Edom. In fact, you know, it's, uh, the translation here sounds funny, doesn't it? In verse 30, if you have the same version I have, Esau said to Jacob, please give me a swallow of that red stuff there. Now, that sounds real funny to me for, for Bible. Does anybody have the King James here today? Could you, could you read that verse? That sounds more sophisticated, <laughs> a little bit more like we think the Bible ought to say it than red stuff there. I like the New American Standard, but sometimes I don't like uh, everything the way they're trying. But really, what, what, what we have here is he is saying, give me a bite or you know, a portion of that Edom, is what he's saying there, of that red stuff, <laughs> of that red stew. Give, uh, please let me have a swallow of that Edom. And so they've translated it red stuff. Uh, it seems probably was a condiment added to it. We can't even be sure what all was involved here other than obviously lentils were involved. But what else was involved doesn't, there's no way of telling. But uh, the word Edom means red. It's very fitting with, with the character that comes through with Esau here. Uh, you know, what is that stuff? I want <laughs> give me a bite of that, of that stuff there. Esau wanted the soup because he felt he was dying of starvation here. Now, Jacob is obviously far from uh, without uh, you know, guilt in all of this situation here. He's very human, prone to act in the flesh, just as we are. He suddenly saw an opportunity. Again, I'm assuming at this moment, I will flip-flop the picture here in a minute, but I'm assuming at this moment that he had not prepared this with any premeditation here, that he was innocently preparing this soup and the opportunity just came to him. And uh, he suddenly saw here an opportunity to obtain the birthright from his foolish brother. Now, we have no idea whether Rebecca ever told Esau about, the, the, about God's word to her, to him, to her. <laughs> Let me go back again to verse 23. Remember, she, the children were struggling in her womb, and so she wanted to know what in the world was going on, why was this war going on inside her before these children were even born. And so she went to the Lord, and the Lord said, two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body, the one people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. I am absolutely certain, even though it's not said here in so many words, that she told Jacob about this. And Jacob was fully aware. There is no evidence, and you might think it's very probable she did not tell Esau. Now, did Isaac tell Esau? Well, we don't know. I, Esau doesn't. You can't tell by his actions or his attitude what he knew. But it sure seems clear that Jacob knew and was uh, aware of what God had said. 
And so what is he going to do? He's going to help God along here. Now, it's very possible that this whole thing was premeditated. It's very possible that Jacob knew Esau was going to go out and go hunting and that he would come back hungry because he'd done this before. And so he was purposely out cooking this, st this stuff at the place where he knew Esau would return, like he did every time he came back from a hunting trip. And he was kind of fanning it, you know, like they do at Sears when they pop corn or whatever it is all through the whole store. Uh, so that uh, when he came, that he would be drawn to this and that he planned the whole thing in his mind. This is clearly possible. So whether it was an opportunity and he simply was an opportunist or whether it was premeditated, either uh, is possible. And in either case, Jacob is culpable here for what happened. He took matters into his own hands. God had said, the elder will serve the younger. He could have just rested in that and say, God, by his will, will bring this to pass. But just as Abraham and Sarah said, well, God isn't doing anything. The baby is not coming. God needs our help. So here, Abraham, you take Hagar. And all kinds of problems came out of that. So it seems Jacob forgot that episode. It just wasn't there in his mind for him to remember that if you take it into your own hands, you're going to have a big problem. And so he goes ahead and takes it into his own hands. This man will reap later what he has sown here when he gets to uh, Paden Aram and is in the situation involving Rachel. Jacob says to Esau, I'd love to give you some of this soup. You're my brother. Just have some. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if you'll sell me my, your birthright, I'll give you some of this stew. What this tells us is something that I've already been trying to emphasize about the character of this man Esau. He was a hedonist. That is, he went after his pleasure, after his desires. First off, that was the primary thing in his life. He adhered to the eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die philosophy. Do you know that that's scriptural? Let's look at, not advocating it, but that that statement is scripture. Isaiah 22, verse 12. Therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping and wailing, to shaving the head and wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. This is a philosophy that has dominated so much of the human race from the beginning of time. It's the philosophy that literally became the exalted philosophy in ancient Rome in the first century, at the time the church was born. There were those who, well, Lucretius was the great uh, philosopher who was uh, primarily espousing this. And uh, Lu Lucretius, in effect, said that you might as well 
enjoy this life because it's the only one you have. When you're dead, you're gone. You're, you're, you're history. There's no afterlife. It's all over. So you might as well get all the gusto you can now, right? You only go around once, so get what you can while the getting is good. Look out for number one. I mean, all of these little phrases, which are true in our society today, are ancient phrases. Uh, they go back throughout human history. And in the very time in which Jesus lived and the church was born, this was a very profound philosophy amongst the upper class in, in uh, the Roman society because they're the ones who had the wealth and the power and they lived that way. And Lucretius was their philosopher. Oh, they loved him because he didn't put any responsibility upon their shoulders. Esau responds that if he dies of hunger, what could the birthright be? This really shows us how little his birthright mattered to him. He had been told, of course, that the birthright carried the responsibility of the Abrahamic covenant, as well as being the inheritor of the whole material estate. But it's very obvious that the covenant meant nothing to him. He had no concept of what it meant to be a covenant man. And he would later mourn the loss of the estate, but I don't think he gave a rip about the loss of being the inheritor of the covenant. He knew, I mean, almost all of us have said, oh, I'm dying of hunger. And, you know, that's a, a hyperbole, right? We're, we're saying that just to emphasize the fact that we're ready to eat. We're not going to die of hunger. Uh, most of us probably are nourished well enough. We could go a day or two without dying of hunger and maybe a few more than that. And he wasn't going to die of hunger either. And he knew it. He could have called for a servant. Bring me some food. Why didn't he do it? Why didn't he say, oh, you mean I've got to give my birthright away to get this? Hang it on your nose. I'll go get a servant to bring me something to eat. Why didn't he do that? That seems reasonable, rational. And he would have had his need met. But he was like a child. He wanted what he wanted now. I want some of that. And I'll be satisfied with nothing else. I've got to have it now. I'm got, you know, I see I'm shaking. I'm so hungry. And so he demanded it. Now we could say, you know, if you go back to the old idea about Jacob, <clears throat> Jacob was a plain man. He lived in the tent, and he followed his mother around. Uh, you know, idea sometimes we get here. Why didn't he just pick the little sniveling guy up and punch him out and take the soup? You know, if that was the situation here. Well, there are two reasons. First of all, the birthright didn't matter that much to him. It wasn't worth the effort. Second of all, I think Jacob could have defended himself quite well, thank you. I think Jacob was a strong man. Later on, Jacob will wrestle all night with an angel of the Lord. Now, whatever we want to say spiritually about that, whatever we want to interpret there, this tells us that Jacob was not a weakling. He was not the little 98-pound guy, you know, to get sand kicked in his face by some, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger type. I mean... Here we're talking about a man of, of strength of character and strength of body. And so Esau does not try to intimidate him. He sells his birthright to him. Now, Jacob's no dummy. He knows that if he just says, uh, well, just tell me you'll give me your birthright and I'll give you some soup, that that's not sufficient because Esau will probably deny he ever said it. 
So he makes him for, uh, give a formal oath, which in those days was like signing a contract. Now, it doesn't say it in so many words here, but I am sure he must have, he probably called someone in to witness this, servant or whatever, to listen so that Esau couldn't later say, no, I never made such an oath at all, because Esau later makes no contention that he did not do this. He'll come in later whimpering and saying, oh, you know, don't you have something for me, Father? But he won't deny that he sold his birthright at, um, at this juncture. So Jacob, you see, is a very, very sly man. He, he knows what to do and how to do it right. <laughs> right in the legal sense of the word. <clears throat> so Esau sits down, and he has his soup, his, his stew, and as Scripture tells him, he also gave him some bread. A little extra here, you know, for what you've done. And he contentedly filled his belly with apparently no thought about the fact that he had just sold his birthright as the eldest son. Chapter 25 here of uh, Genesis ends with really sad, sad words. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What for? A bowl of lentil soup. Eat him! And so the scripture tells us that his name would thus, that he would have the nickname Edom. Possibly, as we noted, already attached to him by some since he was a red, ruddy person to start with, but certainly attached to him from this moment on. And it was not a nickname that was given because of, it was not an endearing term. It was a term that indicated that he was a foolish man. And forever, the name would perpetuate our understanding of the rebellious nature of this man, Esau. And of all those, literally, who allow their lust for temporal things to compromise the eternal. L let me read a couple of passages from the New Testament that impinge upon this. Luke 12, <clears throat> in uh, verses 29 to 31, we're more familiar with the Matthew version of this, but it, it basically says the same thing. Luke 12, 9, uh, 29. Do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Now that is not a truth that Jesus just came along suddenly and spoke to those within his hearing. And it was like a no, no, new truth, totally out of co context and, and out of historical uh, understanding. No, this truth has been there from the beginning. Adam and Eve understood this to some extent. And certainly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood this. Otherwise, it wouldn't say in Hebrews, as it does, that Abraham sought the city whose builder and maker was God. He wouldn't have said that if Abraham didn't know that it's more important to seek God's kingdom than it is to seek the things of this life, to pursue them, to make them the end of life. And yet, we live in a society for whom that is so profoundly true. 
We live in what has got to be, if not the most, one of the most materialistic societies that has ever existed on this planet. And even though there have been, you know, everybody in the world is tempted along the, t the lines of materialism, we live in a society when it's so much available and comes at us from every side. And it's so easy to neglect the things of the kingdom, to live for material things. But Paul, in, in his letter to the Colossians, in the third chapter, gives us more light here. He says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, where you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's, you know, a reiteration of what Christ has said. If we are His, we need to be seeking those things which are above, not seeking those things here. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't look for advancement in our job, that we shouldn't take care of the material things that are important for us to take care of. But if the end of our life, the goal of our life, is that position, or this thing, or this place, then we've totally missed the mark. We are Esau's in our thinking. But if our goal is to serve him, and he provides us these things along the way, as he did for Abraham. Abraham sought that eternal city, but God gave him what he needed along the way in an abundance. He was an extremely wealthy man. God doesn't do that for everybody. But the attitude is what is important. Whether we're poverty-stricken or wealthy, if our attitude is right, God blesses and God provides. But you can be poor and, and be materialist, be a materialist, as well as being rich and being one. And we need to set our mind on things above. As you go through Paul's writings, and as you read particularly the book of Romans, you keep coming across this word, mindset, mindset. Mindset. Where is our mind set? Well, we know where Esau's mind was set. His mind was set on his belly. And that was all that was of concern to him at that moment. He was, as I said last week, a perpetual adolescent, it seems, all of his life. Chapter 26, second half of the book of Genesis. We'll race through this second half as we did the first. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land to wh of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Sound like something we've read before? God's a great teacher. God knows that we have short memories. And so he says it again. And he says it again, and he says it again. And then after that, he hits us over the head and says it again. Because 
we have great forgetters. You know, it's like, as Leroy was commenting about me earlier, all of us have some sort of spiritual senility, and uh, we forget real easily uh, what God has told us. And so we need to be told again and again. So now God is telling Isaac what he had told Abraham several times and what Abraham had told Isaac. Now he's telling Isaac directly and making him the, the full inheritor of all that was the covenant. Scripture here says the land of Canaan experienced a famine. The Hebrew word is ra'ab, which means hunger. A hunger came on the land in the days of Isaac. Now, the method of food preservation in those days and the methods of food distribution at that time were very, very primitive. They didn't have big refrigerator trucks to run down interstates. Uh, they didn't have, obviously, refrigeration or any of the other things. Didn't have sodium, this, that, and the other thing to put in it as, quote, just a preservative to, to make the food last. So, as a result, Whenever there was a reduction of a crop because of some calamity, the, result, the resulting impact was immediate. Now, for us, we can have drought hit this country, and we can go for months and months without it really seriously impacting us. Yes, the prices will, will go up, but the food's still there. But in those days, you couldn't just run down to the supermarket and, and grab something that was imported from Chile. Uh, you had to eat what was grown right there. And if it wasn't grown right there, you were hungry. Famine came quickly in war, drought, pestilence. What was the main way to escape famine? Well, the main way to escape famine in those days was migration. Now, for us, that doesn't seem like a really realistic option, right? How many of us, if we started getting hungry, would just leave our home and go somewhere else to live? I mean, we have all the problems of trying to sell your house. And how could you sell your house in the midst of a famine? Who wants to buy it? I mean, just think of all uh, the problems that would be involved. You remember the story of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah? <laughs> I'm getting myself all fouled up here. Ruth, chapter 1. And now it came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine, a hunger in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. There was a famine, so how did he deal with the famine? He moved. He moved to where there was food. And so here you have a Bethlehemite moving to a foreign country, in fact, to a land of the enemy of uh, the Israelites, to Moab. And, of course, out of this comes one of the most beautiful stories of love and commitment and devotion in, in the Old Testament. And, of course, out of this comes a woman who becomes a member of the line of Messiah who is not even an Israelite. Gives us a little bit of understanding of the mind of God. Certainly for God's people, God is the ultimate hope. God is our Savior. God is our provider. God was the provider for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all through the Old Testament. Remember what happened when the great famine came in the days of Elijah. Uh, what did God do? God led Elijah by the brook Kareth, and there water was flowing, and how did God feed him? By ravens. Now, is that the normal way God feeds people in famine? 
As far as we know, that's the only person who's ever been fed that way. I don't know of anybody else. Anybody else here been fed by ravens? I don't mean because you ate a raven. <laughs> I don't think they're very tasty, but I've never tried one. That was an unusual way to provide. God miraculously provided for Elijah. But God provided in the midst of a, of a great famine. Later on, when a uh, famine, not later from Elijah's day, but later on in, in, uh, the, in Genesis, when a third famine will come on the land. It's very interesting. There was a famine in the days of Abraham, a famine in the days of Isaac. Two go. You think, does God know what he's doing? Yes, God knows what he's doing. He has a plan and a purpose in it all. So God preserves his people, in the case of Jacob and the descendants, by sending them to the land where there was food. In Elijah's case, he fed him miraculously. The scripture promises that God will provide by whatever means he so chooses. In Psalm 33, we have these words, verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death, and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our helper and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped or waited for you. David said, I have never seen God's seed begging bread. God provides for his people if they trust in him. How he does it is his choice, and it's not the same in every instance. We, we have a sense within ourselves, just as Peter did. When God said, what, when Jesus said, what's going to happen to Peter, he turns and says, and what about him? And Jesus says, it's none of your business what happens to him. You just mind your own business. And no, God chooses his own method to work deliverance in each life. And it's not a cookie-cutter situation. It's our situation only to trust in him. Now, the, the question that can be asked here is, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why are there famines in the world? Why do we see pictures of little Ethiopian children who look like sticks with flies landing on them. They're, they're, you know, they look half dead. They're starving. Does God not love those little children? If he does love those little children, some say, well, he must not be all-powerful. The, you know, the, the human argument is, if God can help and doesn't, he's not loving. And if he does love and doesn't, he can't. This, this is the earthly interpretation. But why does God allow these famines and these tragedies to occur? Well, I think from Scripture, we can come up with three answers. One answer is the answer, of course, that uh, is easily thrown around by us when we think we're really spiritual and other people aren't. Well, God's judging them. They're, they're bad, and, and God is, is dealing with them. And, and there's no doubt about the fact. Scripture teaches that whatsoever we sow, we reap. He who sows the wind reaps the whirlwind. Judgment is 
an explanation for things like great famines at times. We know the flood of Noah was a judgment of God upon wicked men. God has brought limited judgments since that time through war, through famine, through pestilence, various means that he has chosen. In Ezekiel, this is made very poignant. Not everything about Ezekiel is really clearly understood by us or even by the finest commentators. But there are some things that are very, very clear. In Ezekiel chapter 14, now I, I only have verse 21 on there, but I want to back up and read verses 13 and 14 also. This is, the scripture tells us that this is the word of the Lord. Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves. Verse 21. For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. It's obvious, you cannot deny, that these things do come sometimes as judgment. Now, it's hard for us to be clear-eyed about this and determine which is which, and it may not be our responsibility to do that. Now, is it God's judgment upon Ethiopia that there's this terrible famine today? I, you know, we can't say. Uh, because is Ethiopia any more wicked than most of the other nations of the world or than the United States? It's very hard to say so. But famine does come as judgment sometimes. And the scripture, we won't turn to the Revelation passage, but you know it there. It simply says that the third voice spoke and said, told of the black horse that came. And the black horse rode out with a great balance in its hand in uh, the man on the black horse with a balance in his hand. And uh, that balance basically said that a day's labor will buy you a measly quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. Now, a quart of wheat is not much to feed a family with. And if it takes your whole day's wage to buy that little amount of food, you're talking about a famine. Sometimes God uses these things as persuasion. And uh, I think one of the best examples of this was in the days of Ahab. When famine came on the land, what did this famine do? It prepared the hearts of the people. Just, just imagine, here's Ahab, the wicked king. He's married to Jezebel, the daughter of the priest of Baal from Phoenicia. And everything's going wonderful in the land. People have all they want. And the economy is great. The stock market's high. Everything is just, just wonderful. And here comes the, the, the prophet along. Here comes Elijah. And he says, I want to have a contest on the mount, top of Mount Carmel between God, who have you forgotten, and, and the priests of Baal. How many people would have come to the top of Mount Carmel to see this? Who wants to hear this old hairy prophet? I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an anachronism. We, we don't want to hear him. We have a lot better things on television to watch. 
They came because they were hungry. <laughs> they came because calamity was on the land, and they couldn't understand why this calamity was there, and they knew if there was calamity, it certainly meant that the prophets of Baal weren't really getting through to their God very well. So let's go up and find out if Elijah has something to say, because we have down inside the root of our being a sense that maybe there's something about this God that we have known as a nation in the past and have now forgotten. So God used this famine as a persuader, as a goad. Get on top of the mountain, folks, because I'm going to demonstrate my power. And Elijah said to the people, stop standing on the fence or sitting on the fence. If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal's God, serve him. Don't just sit in the middle. And of course, you know, the lightning struck and the, everything was burned up, including the stones. And what did the people say? says they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now, what prepared their hearts for that? Famine. They were hungry. Disaster was in the land. How does God get through to a lot of people? He throws them up against the wall sometimes. How many people do you know of? My grandfather was a case in point. I mean, he was nearly killed by a massive heart attack. And then he was ready to listen. And God gave him 10 years after that to serve him. And he was 75, you see, when he had that heart attack. God gave him a lot of years to, to think about this whole situation, but everything was fine in life. You know? He had everything he needed, and all of a sudden, bang, he was that hair breadth from death. Then he was ready to listen. What does God do? You know, how many books have you read where God you know, literally plastered somebody before they were willing to listen. And we say, oh, how could God, if he's a loving God, let such tragedy come? Because God has an eternal purpose that's so much important, more important than how well, how we feel today or how much food we have today. That's not near as important as whether, where our eternal soul's going to go. And so God uses it as a persuader. And then also we don't have time to do it, but he also uses it as a test. A famine can come as a test, and that's, of course, how God used it in this particular situation. And uh, we'll look at that next week.